0: Did you hear the one about three holes in the ground? Well, well, well. Find out how investing for retirement income and drawing water from a well are more similar than you think. At least, that's what we're going for.
1: Hey everybody, welcome to Retire With Style. I'm Alex and I'm here with... Wade. (laughs) Fowl. And we're getting ready to roll (laughs) another one. Wade, what are we gonna talk about today? We're going
2: to talk about a very popular topic on, if you ever read an article on Yahoo Finance or anything like that about the 4% rule, and then read the comments, you'll read a number of comments that say, what is this 4% rule nonsense? I've put together a portfolio of dividend paying stocks, giving me a 6% dividend yield. Uh, The 4% rule is meaningless. And so we're going to be talking about this idea of investing for income. Uh, leaning into higher yielding uh, dividend paying stocks or with bonds, it's the same sort of conversation around higher maturity, longer maturity or um, credit risk to seek out a higher yield and how that may not ultimately really create additional value for the retirement plan. It's popular in comment sections on finance articles but it's not been an issue that's been really analyzed or explored in terms of the historical data in the same way that the 4% rule has. And where economic theory really points to the idea that, no, there really shouldn't be anything there. It, leaning into higher yielding stocks and
1: bonds should not give you a higher withdrawal rate for retirement. Got you. And, and just That's the, the basic matter. And just to recap <laughs> this, way, this is also part of the previous stuff that we've been talking about, where we got into why 4% rule may actually be too high. And so this episode, it's 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 nothing really against the 4% as it relates to the total return. But a lot of folks take this 4% rule and impose upon it a dividend strategy to, to get that 4% or even higher as, as Wade pointed out. Correct?
2: Right. We're in a, a series of probably three episodes talking about why the 4% rule might be too high, or what that really means is where when you change assumptions behind the 4% rule, you might end up with a lower withdrawal rate number. Now, later on, we'll talk about, there's a whole host of reasons why the 4% rule might be too low. But in particular today, what we're talking about is the 4% rule assumes you have a total market portfolio. You invest in total market stock and bond indices, you invest for total returns, you don't worry about the breakdown between cash flows kicked off of the portfolio and the selling of principal to fund retirement expenses and the violation of that assumption that we're talking about today is no you you move away from total returns you lean into higher yielding
1: assets. Well wow, wait, the word violation. That, <laughs> that sounds serious.
2: <laughs> Violating the assumptions. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: what why do you think this is just anecdotally, uh, based on your experience reading it, why, why do you think it's such a popular idea, income investing, uh, investing for dividends, investing for yield, as opposed to thinking the portfolio as a whole or, or, or whatnot? What, what, what's your take on that?
2: Well, I think it can just intuitively sort of make sense that if I can put together a portfolio that's kicking off 6% income and I never have to sell a share why wouldn't that be a, a better retirement strategy? I, I just think intuitively it sounds appealing. Now the, the the issue is, is it actually going to work better? But I, I think intuitively it sounds good.
1: Yeah. No, I've I've debated that myself. Oh, what do I think? Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Alex? <laughs> no, I I I I I actually I, I agree with you 100%. I also think it's one of these things from a bygone era, error error. Well, I don't know which word is appropriate. Maybe both era, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and by that I mean, you know, when stocks really used to kick out dividends a while back, you know, many many times it was it was higher than uh, than bonds, and at a certain point it kind of flipped the other way around. But I, I, it seems to me, in the old school way, investing was just thought like that. You know, get good quality stocks that kick out a dividend, and from that dividend you get your cash flow. I, I don't I don't see that to be the case that much anymore. But there's something there that has remained, and frankly, I, I think the Wall Street uses that, and many advisors use that, and many reporters use that as almost like a gimmicky is too strong of a word, but almost like a way to to get eyeballs or to attract certain strategies that you know from an economic standpoint. There's nothing wrong with them, but by the same token, there's nothing good with them either. You know, by good, I mean there's nothing above and beyond why you should use them relative to other strategies. It, if, if anything, it limits the purview of potential other investment strategies we'll, we'll get into. But we, this, we see this quite quite a bit, this, this whole investing for income versus just a, a total return approach.
2: Yeah, I think there could be a behavioral piece too where people generally don't like having to spend down their nest egg or they don't like to sell shares to fund retirement expenses. And so behaviorally, it kind of feels like the whole idea of spending your paycheck. Well, if you put together a portfolio that's providing you this paycheck of interest and dividends, you're not having to sell shares. There could be a degree of comfort in that, a reassurance that I, I'm not going to spend down my assets because I'm not selling my assets. I get you. And so so, so certainly that could be part so wait, of it So wait, if you well. don't
1: mind, though, taking us through the calisthenics of... Of why do we say that there really is no benefit from taking income in the form of dividends versus just creating your own dividend by just selling shares yourself to to you know to, to raise cash what why is that why is there no benefit one way or the other mm-hmm
2: well, the the basic finance theory, kind of the value of a stock is the present value of its future dividends. And I don't know if this is always commonly or always understood, but when a dividend is paid, the stock price reduces by the amount of the dividend. Now, at the end of the day that the dividend is paid, that may not be an exact thing because there's capital gains and capital losses going on every day. But the the stock price falls by the amount of the dividend. And that's where nothing in a pure economic sense has changed between having a higher price stock that didn't pay a dividend or a stock that reduced in price by the amount of the dividend paid.
1: So that's important. If you if you had, so you think about what Wade is saying, if you had 100 shares of a stock and they're priced at $20, you, you effectively have $2,000 that your portfolio is worth $2,000 <laughs> now you can sell a certain amount you can you can sell $100 worth of it and there you have it but let's say these stock you know you have 100 shares and the issue $1 in dividends you know all of a sudden that price goes down to $19 and they've all those the company has effectively kicked out to you by $1 a share in per a 100 bucks so it's it's effectively the same thing. So you shouldn't. There there, there isn't one. Yeah, the one dollar either if it comes through dividends or if it comes through capital gains, is economically the same. Not without any tax considerations. I'm not. You know, it, it ordinary mm-hmm. dividends versus qualified dividends. I'm not going to get into that right now. But and that's depending on your holding period. But effectively, it's the same economic transaction.
2: Right. Right. Without taxes. And that's the other thing. I mean, taxes actually weaken the case for the dividend paying stocks, but ignoring taxes. Yeah. It doesn't really matter how you extracted that portion of your asset, whether it was through a dividend or whether it was through selling shares. You you have the same number of shares, but they're worth less after the dividend is
1: paid. Yeah. So, so conceptually, what, what really is going on there? And, and that's where we want to make sure that you're making the right decisions. And so, when you get you know presented with these dividend strategies with these sort of things I'm, I'm not sure they're necessarily an improvement worth versus what could be done from a total return standpoint and i would go so far as to say as you're limiting your opportunity set in which you can extract ongoing equity premiums over the long term now that's that's as it relates to stocks uh, real quick in terms of bonds I, we see this a lot in McLean where someone comes in with these bond portfolios especially as returns have you know as yields have gone down although they're they're heading back up where you know over the long term there there really is a little bit of a premium for maturity for extending maturities but once you get past a certain point there's not much there and there is a little bit of a term premium but it's it's nothing it's nothing to to go crazy about right and so the danger that happens is there's this there's this desire to start chasing yield. There is, there really is and when you start like just when you start thinking about it in terms of mental accounting, like yield. This bond is going to give me five percent, and you know what? That's one percent over the four percent rule, so that's a heck of a deal. There's there, there's a danger to do that, and ultimately what happens is you're really taking more outsized risks than you wanted to to begin with. Now this is separate from time segmentation, where you're matching liabilities exactly you know this is this is where we're sticking to the total return probability safety for probability optionality side of the quadrant right now and so from that vantage point fixed income should serve as more of a ballast and you shouldn't even it shouldn't even be a consideration from the standpoint of taking distribution from it or not it, it really serves as a ballast to the equity portion so you you really want to sort of watch yourself when it comes to that uh Wait, uh, you, I've heard you say this, and it merits saying it again. What's what's an analogy that folks use that I, I think hit? I've heard, I heard it years ago, and I've never forgotten it, and I use it quite a bit when it comes to earmarking dividends versus a total return approach. You know, and I'm thinking precipitation here. What's how, how does that analogy go? Because I, I think that's something that really hits home whenever I hear it.
2: <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what analogy. Oh, really? The one about the to... well.
1: I'm sorry. Like water from a well. Cool. Oh, it's a f- that may be new to me. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, I thought of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> why don't you? Why don't you tell us this analogy? I was trying to set you up, wait. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no. Uh, effectively,
1: if you think about it like this, uh, you know, dividends. There's many ways you can you can create a distribution amount, right? You you can get it from wherever, right? So think about water in a well right? You're taking water from a well, so it's very similar to taking sustainable distributions, right? You don't concern yourself when you're taking water from a well if the water came from snow, if it came from rain, if it came from morning dew or whatnot. You just are concerned that there's water there. You're not like – you don't have a special bucket that's just going to pick up rainwater or a special bucket that's just going to pick up (laughs) snow, a special bucket that's just going to pick up morning dew or, or whatnot. You're just taking it from the well. It's that's the way I, I view the ability to take sustainable withdrawals from a portfolio. I'm less concerned. I'm, I'm not concerned at all, frankly, whether if it's coming from a dividend or it's coming from capital appreciation and I'm just cutting a slice of that appreciation for myself. And, and that's that's a better way of looking at this than to getting into the game of mental accounting with dividends. Now, some of you may point out, well, there's been studies about this right? There's been studies about this, uh, how, how they do relative to others. I mean, popular book was the dividend aristocrats, things along those lines. And, and what you'll see over the long term, that there is no above average return provided by dividend stocks relative to the factors that they are naturally exposed to. And what I mean by that is, you know, is, uh, you're able to assess how much value stocks bring to the table or, you know, what the expected return is of a stock based on a few factors, right? Their market beta, their exposure to size, small cap stocks tend to outperform larger cap stocks, their exposure to value, value stocks tend to outperform uh, growthier stocks, their exposure to momentum, their exposure to a quality factor, which is a relatively new one. And, and this, this determines roughly 95, 98% of the expected variability, false stock market returns. And so when you look at dividend stocks, you know, they have a little bit more exposure to quality. They have a little bit more exposure to value, but you can capture that passively without having to go all in into dividend stocks. And so a, a way of saying that there's there's many stocks in the stock market that have these types of exposures that don't provide dividends, you know, but they have the same expected return as dividend stocks. So why would you reduce your opportunity set within the investable universe by just focusing on dividend stocks. It would be akin to, you know, I want to, there's, there's stocks A through Z, they all have the same expected return, but you know what, I'm going to invest just in stocks A through M. And stocks N through Z, I'm going to forget about. Why? Because they, they don't start with, if they don't start with the letter A through M. That really is the case. There, there's no above and beyond reason why a dividend stock will outperform other stocks that have similar exposures to these risk factors. Wade, do you want to go into that a little bit?
2: No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's, again, what I've also seen kind of explained about this is with when you lean towards yield, you're trading current income for risk to future income. Because yeah, like, like you're point. saying, you're moving away from the total market portfolio. Now, the total market portfolio pays dividends and interest. It's just they may be lower than the the spending goal, and that's the difference. Is when you shift away from the total market portfolio, lean into dividend paying stocks or higher yielding bonds, you are moving into riskier sectors of the market ultimately, and you might get more income today, but uh, if the total returns are equal or less than the uh, for this subsector of the market that you're going into over the long term, you're not going to be in a a better position. A lower total return, doesn't matter how high the dividend yield is, you're going to spend on that asset base quicker. And that really is the concern with these sort of uh, income investing type strategies.
1: No, you're absolutely right. And, and there's risk. There's risk in the, in the concentration factor. And, and from a concentration point of view, and again, I, I believe I said it earlier, but like 60% of US stocks do not issue dividends. 40% of international stocks don't pay dividends. And so you're, you're really excluding them. And so you could say, well, I don't need that. You know, but if I get 10 good dividend paying stocks, then uh, i feel good about that or if i get 20 good dividend paying stocks then i feel good about that and now then it's just basic portfolio construction 101 as much as you feel good about the dividends i mean you're taking an uh, an exorbitant amount of risk relative to your retirement safety to put to put your whole entire income strategy on just 10 stocks or 20 stocks or what have you and at that point you know ignore all the studies that wade has done uh, that has done on the 4% rule or that you know we've just brought up because the reality is it doesn't apply if you just have 10 20 mm-hmm. stocks i mean it, it's hard enough to get a sustainable draw rate with 3000 stocks all right
2: Wade, i mean you want to maybe <laughs> right you're you're not using the assumptions of the 4% rule there's a the tracking error you're not the 4% rule is based on total market portfolio returns you're not using that assumption, so you can't rely on that research. Yeah, it, to know what a sustainable spending strategy would because be because
1: you're not diversifying away from company risk at that point, and that's that's the risk that you're not necessarily compensated for. And we can't, you know, we, we it's too much noise at that point to really make any uh, conclusions with regards to what the sustainable withdrawal rate is, and that's very important. I, I, I mean, you know, you can take these these. These uh, assumptions, but it really goes down to having a market portfolio. And that was one of the reasons why in the previous episode, we said, why may it be be too high? A 4% rule may be too high because investors kind of muddy things up a bit. And this is one of the prime ways to muddy things up where you sort of think to yourself, well, you know what? I'm going to back into a 4% rule by looking at dividends. And if you know what? If I get stocks that effectively pay 4% and it's 30 of them, so you know what? I'm diversified. Not really. You know, you're diversified in the sense that maybe the standard deviation equates to what the market standard deviation is, but the 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 tracking error is going to be immense, and the opportunity cost is, is you know you're not going to be diversified across all the industries, et cetera, et cetera, and and so it's it's troublesome in there. And and by concentration, ask yourself well, what are the companies that issue dividends? And again, there's nothing wrong with dividends. We don't want to sort of paint them in a bad picture. It's just when you're trying to capture market returns, you have to expose yourself to market returns. And these sustainable withdrawal rate strategies are based on capturing market returns efficiently. Uh, another thing Wade that I, I just wanted to point out is uh, there there is, and you pointed out there there's there is a little bit of a behavioral sort of thing going on here. And, and it's interesting because there's been studies by you know, Sheffrin and Statman that that really begins to point this out because I think what you're referring to is there is no economic reason why a dividend is better than just taking, a, you know, selling, selling and taking the gain and, and creating your own dividend. There shouldn't be a, a one better than the other, if you will. Well, I would say the sustainable, the total return is better, but, you know, the economic, <laughs> the, the dollar is the same from from any pile, Right. And, and Sheffern and Statman point out, and I don't know, I, I don't have enough conversational backdrop to point this out, and I think they're just posing this as well, but it's, it's an interesting concept. And what, it, what dividends do provide is this ability to control, to control spending a little bit. What they start saying is, well, you know what? We have trouble as human beings delaying gratification. I only have that problem with marshmallows on a table, but that's that's it. Uh, no, human beings have trouble with delaying gratification, and so what the dividend a dividend policy does do is it kind of does it for the person. It kind of just you know the person doesn't really have to sell, the person doesn't have to buy. It just stands back and waits for that dividend check to come in in yeah. cash, and takes it. And so it's a, it's a really a matching of a cash flow piece that that seems to kind of have a lot of interest with folks in terms of doing that. And that may be, I'll take it a step further, that may be maybe why sometimes folks get an advisor because they they effectively function as that person cutting that check and sending it to them where the
0: person mm-hmm. doesn't have to do anything themselves. I, what, what do you think about that, Wade? If you're looking for more personal advice, please note that our show is sponsored by McLean Asset Management. Learn more at McLeanAM.com. That's M-C-L-E-A-N-A-M dot com. McLean Asset Management is a wealth management firm where we help you design and implement the right retirement plan for you.
2: Yeah, yeah, for somebody who's I mean, there's many examples of this kind of uh, I'm worried about overspending. I don't feel like I have the willpower to control that. So I might <laughs> just overpay taxes as a forced way to get that tax refund that I'll then save. Or in this context, uh, I don't have the self-control, but if I can just frame things as I'm allowed to spend my dividend and I'm not allowed to sell any shares, that could be a way to just create that gen- the, the behavioral commitment, the general idea of okay, this is how much I'm allowed to spend. Now, you could deviate and spend more. But at some level, you kind of just, okay, here's a rule that I'm going to apply to my situation. I'm allowed to spend dividends. I'm allowed to spend interest. I'm not allowed to sell shares. And that can help me to avoid overspending. So I can imagine that some people might employ that sort of behavioral trick. And that might be why they Liked dividends and interest, sort of to save from you from profligacy
1: to, to some extent. I, right, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what the way I would see it, and the way I've, I've spoken is, to me, it's like allowing a board. Let's say these companies are made up of boards, and the boards, you know, implement dividend policies. It's it's like allowing a board. To kind of determine what your income should be, and this board knows nothing about you, and, <laughs> you know. And, and I'm like, why, why would you do that? You know, I mean, I, I got past my allowance, <laughs> you know, when I was I don't know at 10 years old, right? After that, you know, I, I can I can manage. I, it's one of those things, but yeah, I, I guess it helps for some folks. And I, and this is where I think it still goes back to that old way of thinking. And by old way, I don't mean like this is your dad's oldsmobile or, or this kind of stuff. I just think it's a bygone era where it was kind of a known way, but science moves forward, you know, through much of the research, Bangnet through ways research, you know, there's, there's ways that point out there's optimal ways to do this from a total return strategy. And if you're agnostic and as you should be to where the money comes from, think about the precipitation example, it shouldn't matter at all. I mean, I, I, I think, I think you do yourself a favor by just getting out of that mindset, frankly, because it's mental accounting that can be very tricky another another mm-hmm. thing that these guys point out Wade is that okay that's from yeah. the I'm gonna give you guardrails so spend what your dividend is and that's quote unquote your allowance but there there's a there's a loss aversion piece to this that I, I, that that is interesting as well
2: yeah that people don't like experience and losses and if I'm investing with a total return portfolio and the market is down, that could force me to realize a loss that makes me very sad. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, dividend invest- <laughs> well, the dividend investing approach kind of gives you a backdoor to not have that mental image because the market may be down, but I'm just spending my, my dividends. I'm not selling at a loss. I don't have to deal with a psychological dissatisfaction of selling at a loss. But
1: again, going back to what you I'm said at the beginning, it's really the same thing because the dividend... It reduces the price per share by the dividend amount. So it's it's kind of a, a mm-hmm. funny, a funny thing. You really are, but you're not, you know, that that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, and it'd be interesting if economists always like to come up with these explanations that intuitively make sense, but whether or not people are actually this is they may not even necessarily verbalize it, but they're implicitly behaving this way. It's just internally this is what they're doing. I don't know. It seems kind of like a a stretch.
1: No, I I I see this a lot. I see folks. I see this with prospects coming in, not necessarily clients, because clients, you know, if they are going to be in the total return approach, it is a total return approach. We don't have like a dividend a dividend strategy. There are some firms that do that, and they give it some acronym to sound all fancy or kind of like this is our, you know, intellectual property dividend lever strategy. And I think that's a loaded. Garbage, honestly. I, I no, <laughs> it is. I, I think it's just done to kind of appeal to your uh, behavioral sensibilities. But there, there's nothing. There's no there there, unfortunately. And I, you know, we, we don't do the hand over our heart. We're not going to do something just for that. We're going to do it if it makes sense from a planning from from the planning standpoint. And so I I do think there's a lot there because if you're just collecting dividends, then you can say to yourself, well, I'm not really spending down principal right? In case, in case you had started a 4% rule, right? The other piece is if it, if it goes up even better, right? It's like you're, everything is grave. You're playing with a house's money. But again, if it goes down, you don't feel like you're selling at a loss. And, you know, going that losses are, have a greater emotional valence than gains. I I, I do think there that that has something to do with it. You know, that sort of re- regret avoidance, if you will. But uh, again, there's, there's this, this is, you know, in this episode, there's a couple of points we really wanted to, to hit home on because this is something that it comes up a lot. It comes up a lot. You're going to read it. There's going to be some guy writing some book or woman writing a book about dividends or an article about it. And it shouldn't matter. It really should not matter. Uh, the reality is there's, there's three main points. A dollar in dividends versus a dollar from selling, from selling an asset. Is the same thing. It's irrelevant, and frankly, you have more control of it when it comes via a total return approach. Uh, you know, frankly, we're all about being agnostic versus strategy and so forth. But a, a case, a strong case, is made that a total return approach is just better a better option for you than matching it to dividends. The second point,
2: and, and well, we hinted at the tax issue too, yeah, that exactly, we never really got much in, in depth with. But uh, if you're dividend is all the qualified dividends that are taxed at preferential rates and you're spending it because with any sort of retirement withdrawal strategy, you'd spend any dividends and interest first. And then if you needed more income, you'd sell some shares. So if it's all taxed at qualified dividends and you're spending it all, it doesn't really make a difference. But if you're receiving more dividend than you might actually want to spend even with a qualified dividend, you're still front-loading taxes because you're having to pay the tax on it. And then you might reinvest it. Whereas if it was unrealized long-term capital gains, you could defer the taxation longer. That's exactly right. And that's where the uh, the, the, when you overlay taxes, the dividend strategy looks less uh, helpful (laughs) in that regard. That's
1: exactly right. And so that's the first point. And again, if you had to think of the, the analogy, that's <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot at the beginning, wait, but it's 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 effectively <laughs> that well. Think about think about withdrawals as precipitate water. You're taking water from a well. You don't care about the sources of precipitation. You just care that the water's there. Right. Same thing. You know, you don't care if it's snow, rain, or morning dew. You just want water same thing when it comes to sustainable withdrawal rates whether it comes to the dividends capital gains as long as it's sustainable you're golden because economically it's the same thing the second point is there is no extra added return for investing in dividend stocks versus investing in stocks that are exposed to the same factors that do not pay a dividend there's no magical there's no magical pixie dust on top of dividends Alright, effectively the expected return, the the you know, the expected return of any stock could effectively be explained by their exposure to the market, their their stocks, their exposure to size, their exposure to value, their exposure to momentum, their exposure to quality. So you can those stocks are plentiful within the market. And so why restrict yourself to just the ones that have dividends? That reduces your opportunity set. And it act it, it creates concentration that you don't need, and then it violates effectively the sustainable withdrawal rate strategies that we've been discussing. It just does. You know, and the third one is there's the third theme is there's a strong psychological component here. You know, the first one being that, you know, it creates this 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 ideal that you're not selling principle. You really are though. You know, I thought you really are, but economically it's the same. So you need to disabuse yourself from that because it really it, it doesn't jive. It, it doesn't jive from that. And you know, by by but you know, you're not selling for and the other piece is you're giving yourself kind of an allowance. These companies then through dividends, that's your allowance. So it kind of gives you that that idea that, oh, I'm not gonna spend more than what I get in dividends. So those are those are three those are three reasons right off the bat why for us I, I think when you get so focused on dividends, you start losing, you start, you know, losing the forest for the trees here a little bit, Wait.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we mostly focused on the stock side. We paid a little lip service to bonds, but it, it's the same yeah. situation there too, that if you're, usually there's an upward sloping yield curve, which just means longer term bonds have a higher interest rate than short term bonds. But that's in large part because long term bonds are riskier a small increase in interest rates is going to lead to a bigger loss on a long-term bond than a short-term bond that could wipe out any of that additional <laughs> yield quite quickly. <laughs> and then with credit risk, it's you know, you're just taking on more risk, like junk bonds or whatever the case may be, where you're seeking the higher yield. It, that is going to lead to more volatility and, and not necessarily give you the kind of performance that you're really looking for in the
1: long you're, term. You're a hundred 100 on on target <laughs> here, and and you're right. We kind of bonds are boring, right? So we kind of always just give it lip service <laughs> a little bit. But what w- w- Wade is saying is very very true, and 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 I think more people actually come up to us with portfolios that are searching for yield on the on the credit side than on the high high dividend side. And so f- from this vantage point, a- another way of saying what Wade is saying is that. Uh, term premium, which is the longer out you go, the higher technically you'll get a yield. But it's not that much. Once you get past four or five years from a risk return, from a return relative to the standard, relative to the volatility that that underlying holding mm-hmm. has, it's not worth it. It's it's actually less than what you would get from a efficient model kind of asset. It's actually very poor. You know, extending maturity, so it's not worth the extra bump in yield relative to the risk you're taking. Even though you may say to yourself, "It's a bond," Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. Especially, go that, on. yeah. Well, that that's come up in past episodes too, where like the,
2: all of the the Bill Bengen style research on historical data, it's. Intermediate-term U.S. government bonds were the sweet spot, yeah. supporting the highest withdrawal rates historically, and that's about a five-year Yeah, once you, once you get past that, once you get past that, the volatility doesn't compensate for the, the too much. I mean, the yield doesn't compensate for the extra volatility. Now
1: you may ask yourself, well, why do they have bonds going out that way that long? Who would buy them? Those are people that are trying to do different things with their portfolio, like insurance companies trying to immunize their liabilities in the future, et cetera. You know, th- things like that. The other piece is credit. Oh, I'm going to go, instead of triple I'm going to do double ai am going to do whatever, right? And again, this is in the frame of mind of total return. And so here, fixed income should, again, be seen as the ballast to your portfolio. If you're doing a total return, you shouldn't try to think, okay, I'm going to take this from fixed income, this from uh, stocks, because you it's the whole well example again. It's precipitation, right? And so what happens with credit premium, you may think everything is good, but- what happens is over the long term, when there's moments of dislocation, and that's another way of saying stuff hits the fan. When things just go all out, it's really the high quality, high credit stuff, short term that really remains. The other stuff starts acting a lot more like equities. So all these years that you thought you were getting this sort of you know faux safety returns, you know, it just takes one six month period, one one week period to just blow that all up. And that's why you don't get this sort of efficient risk return trade-off either for extending not just term but credit quality, and so you don't want to do that within this within this uh, dividend mindset because it's very easy to fall into the trap of, hey, this AAA corporate bond or whatever is paying four percent, but this double B is paying seven percent. Hey, it's only one letter. You know what I'm getting? It. <laughs> you know that kind of no, no. You, you don't want to do that at all because. It's it's when you need that security, dislocation occurs, and and where are you at, at that point? Then okay, you still have that dividend, but the the, the actual value just drop, you know, by orders of magnitude. And and there it is. Now we wanted to we we wanted to take time. We were thinking, Wade and I were debating. Okay, do we include this as as a bunch of others? We wanted to just take time and just discuss this one alone because we feel it's important. This this is something that comes up. Quite often, in terms of this uh, dividend, ded- you know, dedicated portfolios when it comes to total return. And so, I, I wait, I feel good about everything we've discussed. Is there anything we may have missed?
2: No, I think we covered it. And so, kind of leading into the next episode, we'll have one more on why the four percent rule might be too high, and that relates to. Uh, the four percent rule ignores taxes. It assumes you're willing to spend your assets down to zero, and it assumes just thirty years, which may not always be a long enough time horizon. And then we'll, after that, we'll get into why the four percent rule might be too low. Yeah, we'll, but, we'll be
1: optimistic. Yeah, at the end. <laughs>
2: this was an important. <laughs> this is an important topic that actually doesn't get a lot of coverage, other than people always just saying, "Well, I, I invest for income, so I." This whole four percent rule conversation is nonsense, and so it was worth unpacking that a little bit today. So thank you for that, Alex. You're the one who pushed to have
1: a more of a unique
2: episode on this topic. So it was a good idea. All right,
1: Wade. (laughs) Well, thank you, everyone. And we'll catch you next week, right?
2: Yep. Thanks. See you next week.
0: Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.